This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, October 31st, 2015. Episode 18, The Lay of Bisclavret, the Werewolf. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and it was one year ago on a Halloween much like this one that I pulled the chain and slowly raised the platform up, up to the top of the turret, exposing the thing that lay shrouded upon it to the galvanizing, vitalizing power of the lightning storm. And as I lowered it back down into the laboratory, behold, a bandaged limb twitches. Look, it's moving. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's moving. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. In the name of God. Now I know what it feels like to be God. Or, really, what I did was that I activated the RSS feed that made the first two episodes of this podcast subscribable. Uh, But yes, it's our one-year anniversary, and I'm very pleased uh, with how the show's developed so far, and with all of the very nice words of support and enthusiasm for it that I've received. I wish I'd gotten a little closer to a, uh, a full slate of 26 episodes for the year, Um, We've had a few more unplanned hiatuses than I'd expected, uh, including what should have been a mid-October episode, uh, which fell victim to the midterm grading onslaught. But I'm still pretty pleased to have gotten to 18. Um, And I've still got a ton of stories that I'm excited to share. I think we're going to have a great year, too. Now, on to today's text. For this special episode, we're going to do something a little different and look at a straight-up fictional literary text, um, and a relatively famous one at that, The Lay of Bisclavret, uh, or The Lay of the Werewolf, as written by the Anglo-Norman poet Marie de France. Which means, uh, I suppose, that I picked the wrong universal movie monster to open the show with. What is this story about a man turning into a wolf? You mean the werewolf? Yes, sir. Well, it's an old legend. You'll find something like it in the folklore of nearly every nation. The scientific name for it is lycanthropia. It's a variety of schizophrenia. Uh, That's all Greek to me. Well, it is Greek. It's a technical expression for something very simple. The good and evil in every man's soul. In this case, evil takes the shape of an animal. Bisclavret, uh, which you'll also find pronounced bisclavret in a modern French way, uh, though what I've gathered, French not being my area, is that um, Anglo-Norman French would have pronounced that final T, uh, and so so will I. Anyway, Bisclavret is one of the foundational Western werewolf tales, um, helping to fill in a rather significant gap we have uh, between some of the classical Greco-Roman werewolves uh, that you find in Ovid and Petronius, and then the folk traditions of the early modern period, which serve as more direct sources for the werewolf traditions we have today. These early werewolves share many of the core anthropological themes that more modern werewolf mythology retains. Um, The core dichotomy between beast and man that we just heard Claude Rains explaining to Lon Chaney Jr., for example, um, and also the idea of giving oneself over to savagery, 
Um, but a lot of the later tropes of werewolf lore are conspicuously lacking, uh, such as the full moon association, the contagious quality of the werewolf's bite, uh, and the vulnerability to silver. Many of these earlier werewolf tales feature men and women who voluntarily shapeshift using witchcraft, uh, though some are certainly cursed by pagan divinities or even Christian saints to suffer as a werewolf. Um, but Bisclavret is a bit of an outlier, anticipating a kind of strangely naturalized werewolf uh, that you otherwise don't see much of until quite a bit later, um, though there are some parallels, perhaps with some of the Norse uh, shapeshifters. But you have this little run of werewolf tales in the 12th century featuring uh, what are sometimes called sympathetic werewolves, creatures identified less with savagery and monstrousness and more with a kind of body horror at having a rational human mind trapped inside an animal's skin. Besides Bisclavret, the other most famous werewolves of this kind from this period are those described by the historian Gerald of Wales, um, about which much has been written. And indeed, I am myself drawing on a great article by Carolyn Walker Bynum uh, from 1998 called Metamorphosis or Gerald and the Werewolf. We never find out how Bisclavret became a werewolf. Um, he may have been born one, as far as we know. And Marie doesn't seem the least bit interested in exploring that question. It's not even clear if he despairs of his condition. He tries to keep it a secret, uh, but this may be as much for simple self-preservation as out of any sort of shame. He doesn't appear to be a warlock or to have made a pact with the devil, nor does he seem to be particularly cursed. Um, he suffers not from his condition, but from people's fear of his condition. But I don't want to give too much away yet. Uh, suffice it to say, this is not your normal werewolf story. Or at least, it wasn't until True Blood and Twilight and a whole rash of late 20th and early 21st century werewolves uh, brought us back around to the trope of the werewolf as a natural state of being, um, as an identity rather than a disease. A few quick words about Marie de France. Compared to our other authors, she's much more likely to be someone you may well have encountered in an English lit class, uh, though of course she wasn't writing in English. She was writing in Anglo-Norman French verse. But like so many of our medieval death trip authors, we know very little about Marie beyond her surviving works, of which her collection of Aesopic fables and the narrative lays are the, the most famous. We know she was writing in the late 12th century, and based on how she describes herself as de France, we can assume that she was French-born but living in England, since it wouldn't make much sense to be de France if you were currently en France. Um, given her education, she was likely of noble birth, and scholars have variously argued that she was a countess, or the wife of a nobleman, or a nun, or an abbess, um, with known candidates named Marie having been identified in each of these vocations. The lays, uh, which are presented as her translations of Breton story songs, are probably her most widely read work. Um, they're available translated in a very nice uh, and widely available Penguin paperback. Um, and they're important as one of the early building blocks in the great chivalric romance tradition. 
I'll be reading from an older translation, uh, not the Penguin edition, that renders Marie's verse into English prose. Um, But I I think the story still has quite a lot of narrative energy to it, even stripped of most of its poetic effects. This version is from the 1911 translation by Eugene Mason in his book, French Medieval Romances from the Lays of Marie de France, which is available through Project Gutenberg. And now, Bisclavret or The Lay of the Werewolf. Amongst the tales I tell you once again, I would not forget the lay of the werewolf. Such beasts as he are known in every land. Bisclavret he is named in Brittany, whilst the Normans call him Garwal. It is a certain thing, and within the knowledge of all, that many a christened man has suffered this change and ran wild in the woods as a werewolf. The werewolf is a fearsome beast. He lurks within the thick forest, mad and horrible to see. All the evil that he may, he does. He goeth to and fro about the solitary place, seeking man in order to devour him. Hearken now to the adventure of the werewolf that I have to tell. In Brittany there dwelt a baron who was marvelously esteemed of all his fellows. He was a stout knight, and a comely, and a man of office and repute. Right private was he to the mind of his lord, and dear to the counsel of his neighbors. This baron was wedded to a very worthy dame, right fair to see and sweet of semblance. All his love was set on her, and all her love was given again to him. One only grief had this lady. For three whole days in every week her lord was absent from her side. She knew not where he went, nor on what errand, Neither did any of his house know the business which called him forth. On a day when this lord was come again to his house, altogether joyous and content, the lady took him to task right sweetly in this fashion. Husband, said she, and fair sweet friend, I have a certain thing to pray of you. Right willingly would I receive this gift, but I fear to anger you in the asking. It is better for me to have an empty hand than to gain hard words." When the Lord heard this matter, he took the lady in his arms very tenderly and kissed her. Wife, he answered, ask what you will. What would you have, for it is yours already? By my faith, said the lady, soon shall I be whole. Husband, right long and wearisome are the days that you spend away from your home. I rise from my bed in the morning sick at heart, I know not why. So fearful am I, lest you do aught to your loss, that I may not find any comfort. Very quickly shall I die for reason of my dread. Tell me now where you go and on what business. How may the knowledge of one who loves so closely bring you to harm? Wife, made answer the Lord, nothing but evil can come if I tell you this secret. For the mercy of God, do not require it of me. If you but knew, you would withdraw yourself from my love, and I should be lost indeed." When the lady heard this, she was persuaded that her baron sought to put her by with jesting words. 
Therefore she prayed and required him more urgently, with tender looks and speech, till he was overborne, and told her all the story, hiding naught. Wife, I become Bisclavret. I enter the forest and live on prey and roots within the thickest of the wood. After she learned his secret, she prayed and entreated the more as to whether he ran in his raiment or went spoiled of vesture. Wife, said he, I go naked as a beast. Tell me, for hope of grace, what you do with your clothing. Fair wife, that will I never. If I should lose my raiment or ever be marked as I quit my vesture, then a werewolf I must go for all the days of my life. Never again should I become man, save in that hour my clothing were given back to me. For this reason, never will I show my lair. Husband, replied the lady to him, I love you better than all the world. The less cause have you for doubting my faith or hiding any tittle from me. What savor is here of friendship? How have I made forfeit your love? For what sin do you mistrust my honor? Open now your heart and tell what is good to be known. So, at the end, outwearied and overborne by her importunity, he could no longer refrain but told her all. Wife, said he, within this wood, a little from the path, there is a hidden way, and at the end thereof an ancient chapel, where oftentimes I have bewailed my lot. Nearby is a great hollow stone concealed by a bush, and there is the secret place where I hide my raiment till I would return to my own home. On hearing this marvel, the lady became sanguine of visage because of her exceeding fear. She dared no longer to lie at his side, and turned over in her mind, this way and that, how best she could get her from him. Now, there was a certain knight of those parts, who for a great while had sought and required this lady for her love. This knight had spent long years in her service, but little enough had he got thereby, not even fair words or a promise. To him the dame wrote a letter, and meeting made her purpose plain. Fair friend, said she, be happy. That which you have coveted so long a time I will grant without delay. Never again will I deny your suit. My heart and all I have to give are yours, so take me now as love and dame. Right sweetly the knight thanked her for her grace, and pledged her faith and fealty. When she had confirmed him by an oath, then she told him all this business of her lord, why he went, and what he became, and of his ravening within the wood. So she showed him of the chapel, and of the hollow stone, and of how to spoil the werewolf of his vesture. Thus, by the kiss of his wife, was Bisclavret betrayed. Often enough had he ravished his prey in desolate places, but from this journey he never returned. His kinfolk and acquaintance came together to ask of his tidings when this absence was noised abroad. Many a man, on many a day, searched the woodland, but none might find him, nor learn where Bisclavret was gone. The lady was wedded to the knight who had cherished her for so long a space. More than a year had passed since Bisclavret disappeared. Then it chanced that the king would hunt in that selfsame wood where the werewolf lurked. When the hounds were unleashed, they ran this way and that, and swiftly came upon his scent. At the view, the huntsman winded on his horn, and the whole pack were at his heels. They followed him from morn to eve till he was torn and bleeding, and was all adread lest they should pull him down. Now the king was very close to the quarry, and when Bisclavret looked upon his master, he ran to him for pity and for grace. 
he took the stirrup within his paws and fawned upon the prince's foot. The king was very fearful at this sight, but presently he called his courtiers to his aid. "'Lords,' cried he, "'hasten hither and see this marvelous thing. Here is a beast who has the sense of a man. He abases himself before his foe and cries for mercy, although he cannot speak. Beat off the hounds and let no man do him harm. We will hunt no more today.' but return to our own place with the wonderful quarry we have taken. The king turned him about and rode to his hall, Bisclaveret following at his side. Very near to his master, the werewolf went, like any dog, and had no care to seek again the wood. When the king had brought him safely to his own castle, he rejoiced greatly, for the beast was fair and strong. No mightier had any man seen. Much pride had the king in his marvelous beast, he held him so dear that he bade all those who wished for his love to cross the wolf in naught, neither to strike him with a rod, but ever to see that he was richly fed and kenneled warm. This commandment the court observed willingly. So all the day the wolf sported with the lords, and at night he lay within the chamber of the king. There was not a man who did not make much of the beast, so frank was he and debonair. None had reason to do him wrong, for ever was he about his master, and for his part did evil to none. Every day were these two companions together, and all perceived that the king loved him as his friend. Hearken now to that which chanced. The king held a high court, and bade his great vassals and barons and all the lords of his venery to the feast. Never was there a goodlier feast, nor one set forth with sweeter show and pomp. Amongst those who were bidden came that same knight who had the wife of Bisclaveret for dame. He came to the castle, richly gowned, with a fair company, but little he deemed whom he would find so near. Bisclaveret marked his foe the moment he stood within the hall. He ran towards him and seized him with his fangs in the king's very presence and to the view of all. Doubtless he would have done him much mischief had not the king called and chidden him and threatened him with a rod. Once, and twice again, the wolf set upon the knight in the very light of day. All men marveled at his malice, for sweet and serviceable was the beast, and to that hour had shown hatred of none. With one consent the household deemed that this deed was done with full reason, and that the wolf had suffered at the knight's hand some bitter wrong. Right wary of his foe was the knight, until the feast had ended, and all the barons had taken farewell of their lord, and departed, each to his own house. With these amongst the very first went that lord whom Bisclaveret so fiercely had assailed. Small was the wonder that he was glad to go. No long while after this adventure, it came to pass that the courteous king would hunt in the forest where Bisclaveret was found. With the prince came his wolf, and a fair company. Now at nightfall the king abode within a certain lodge of that country, and this was known of that dame who was before the wife of Bisclaveret. In the morning the lady clothed her in the most dainty apparel, and hastened to the lodge, since she desired to speak with the king, and to offer him a rich present. When the lady entered in the chamber, neither man nor leash might restrain the fury of the wolf. He became as a mad dog in his hatred and malice. Breaking from his bonds, he sprang at the lady's face and bit the nose from her visage. From every side, men ran to the succor of the dame. They beat off the wolf from his prey, and for a little would have cut him in pieces with their swords. But a certain wise counselor said to the king, 
Sire, hearken now to me. This beast is always with you, and there is not one of us all who has not known him for long. He goes in and out amongst us, nor has molested any man, neither done wrong or felony to any, save only to this dame, one only time as we have seen. He has done evil to this lady and to that knight, who is now the husband of the dame. Sire, she was once the wife of that lord who was so close and private to your heart, but who went, and none might find where he had gone. Now, therefore, put the dame in a sure place, and question her straightly, so that she may tell, if perchance she knows thereof, for what reason this beast holds her in such mortal hate. For many a strange deed has chanced, as well we know, in this marvelous land of Brittany. The king listened to these words, and deemed the counsel good. He laid hands upon the knight, and put the dame in surety in another place. He caused them to be questioned right straightly, so that their torment was very grievous. At the end, partly because of her distress and partly by reason of her exceeding fear, the lady's lips were loosed, and she told her tale. She told them of the betrayal of her lord and how his raiment was stolen from the hollow stone. Since then, she knew not where he went, nor what had befallen him, for he had never come again to his own land. Only, in her heart, well she deemed and was persuaded that Bisclavret was he. Straightway the king demanded the vesture of his baron, whether this were to the wish of the lady, or whether it were against her wish. When the raiment was brought him, he caused it to be spread before Bisclavret, but the wolf made as though he had not seen. Then that cunning and crafty counselor took the king apart, so that he might give him a fresh reed. Sire, said he, you do not wisely nor well to set this raiment before Bisclavret, in the sight of all. In shame and much tribulation must he lay aside the beast and again become man. Carry your wolf within your most secret chamber, and put this vestment therein. Then close the door upon him and leave him alone for a space. So we shall see presently whether the ravening beast may indeed return to human shape. The king carried the wolf to his chamber and shut the doors upon him fast. He delayed for a brief while, and taking two lords of his fellowship with him, came again to the room. Entering therein, all three, softly together, they found the knight sleeping in the king's bed like a little child. The king ran swiftly to the bed, and taking his friend in his arms, embraced and kissed him fondly above a hundred times. When man's speech returned once more, he told him of his adventure. Then the king restored to his friend the fief that was stolen from him, and gave him such rich gifts, moreover, as I cannot tell. As for the wife who had betrayed Bisclavret, he bade her avoid his country, and chased her from the realm. So she went forth, she and her second lord together, to seek a more abiding city, and were no more seen. The adventure that you have heard is no vain fable. Verily and indeed it chanced as I have said. The lay of the werewolf truly was written that it should ever be born in mind. So there you have the lay of Bisclavret. There's so much we could conceivably talk about here, from werewolf lore to the cultural significance of nose mutilation. Um, but I actually picked this story out because of its intersection with one specific issue in modern horror that I'd, that I'd like to talk about. 
Uh, this is going to be a somewhat lengthy commentary, um, but I hope you'll grant me an anniversary indulgence. I'm curious about something I'm calling the perverse suspension of belief. Uh, this is an inversion of Samuel Taylor Coleridge's famous phrase, the willing suspension of disbelief. Now, suspension of disbelief is a quality of the reader, uh, or that's how we tend to see it now. Coleridge framed it as an effect achieved by the poet. Uh, but it describes our willingness to accept the implausible or the fantastic while we are under the sway of a compelling poetic or just literary vision. For a romantic poet like Coleridge, this suspension of disbelief is presented as something with hints of a kind of hypnosis, and you hear that same notion echoed in John Gardner's concept of the uninterrupted fictional dream that the reader enters into. Um, but modern genre theory is happy to take it as just the audience's acceptance and understanding of artistic conventions. Um, it's not so much about being bewitched into a state where emotional logic supplants reason, um, but is much more uh, a straightforward understanding of the tropes and mimetic codes of different genres. In contrast, the suspension of belief is a quality of the characters inside a fiction. But it is a kind of perverse reflection of the reader's suspension of disbelief. So what is it? It's the phenomenon you see all the time in horror and fantasy movies where a character is confronted with a conventional supernatural occurrence and completely fails to recognize it for what it is. And I should stress that I'm specifically talking about cases in which the audience is expected to know exactly what the supernatural thing is, but the characters stubbornly persist in either actively refusing to accept it, um, or, even more to the point, just failing to identify it. This latter trait is perhaps exemplified by the trend we've had in zombie franchises where the characters go out of their way not to use the word zombie, um, or to acknowledge in any way that our culture has an established pop mythology of zombies and how to kill them. And of course, we've already generated films that mock this trope of characters refusing to call a zombie a zombie. Any zombies out there? Don't say that. What? That. What? That. The Z word. Don't say it. Why not? Because it's ridiculous. All right. Are there any out there, though? Can't see any. Maybe it's not as bad as all that. Oh, no, there they are. Indeed, TV Tropes has this exact phenomenon catalogued under the name not using the Z word, which is related to a much broader trope they call genre blindness, uh, which is where a character, quote, demonstrates by their behavior that they have never in their life ever seen the kind of story they're in and thus have none of the reactions a typical audience member would have in the same situation. End quote. This creates a very peculiar bind for creators of genre fiction, because if you do allow your characters to behave as the audience members would, you know, recognizing a zombie apocalypse as a zombie apocalypse, then it inevitably becomes a kind of lampshading of the genre conventions. Um, it ironizes the entire situation and invests it with a kind of satiric detachment that makes it that much harder for the audience to actually suspend their disbelief because the artifice of the conventions is being highlighted by the characters. 
it's easy to wind up uh, damned if you do and damned if you don't. We get frustrated with characters who seem unrealistically blind to the common cultural knowledge we all possess, but we also don't want everything to turn into a metafictional commentary on tropes and conventions and artifice. It's rare that a movie can have its cake and eat it too, uh, in terms of subverting the genre blindness trope. Uh, I'd say the late Wes Craven's Scream is probably the top example, um, with Cabin in the Woods and uh, probably all three of Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg's so-called Cornetto trilogy uh, rounding out that list. Um, So character skepticism has this strange recursive interaction with the audience's suspension of disbelief. Our own suspension of disbelief is partly predicated on our awareness and acceptance of the genre of the story. Uh, In broad terms, we usually need to know from the outset if the world of a story is realistic or fantastic. And a lot of readers don't like it at all if that status changes unexpectedly. That's part of the story's contract with the reader. And when presented with a fantasy world, We can accept characters that are part of that fantasy and who accept the rules of that fantasy themselves, and we can accept characters who initially perceive the fantastical elements as fantastical and surprising and hard to believe in, but I think we do eventually get tripped up by characters who persist in rejecting the fantastical reality that the reader has accepted through the willing suspension of disbelief. Poor Dana Scully of the X-Files is probably the patron saint of this condition, um, being structurally obligated by the show's premise to remain the skeptic even after years of direct exposure to supernatural phenomena. Genre theorists and narratologists have come up with lots of competing schemas for defining the fantastic in contrast to the realistic. I mean, generating new terms for things is 90% of what they do. One approach focuses on defining the character's perception of their world. For example, if the fantastical is defined by the experience of wonder, of the natural order of the world being subverted, then you can arrive at the seemingly peculiar conclusion that something like Tolkien's Middle-earth tales are not fantasy. Why? Because to the characters who live in Middle-earth, all the things that seem to us readers as fantastical are perceived as natural parts of the way the world of Middle-earth is ordered. Magic and monsters are part of that world, and the characters, for the most part, uh, accept that. Shire folk may see such things as exotic, but not as fundamental violations of their reality. In other words, The Lord of the Rings is a realistic depiction of Middle-earth. The Polish literary critic Uh, Andrzej Zgorzelski calls this kind of fiction exomimetic, meaning that it is mimetic, it's an accurate representation of some exo or other outside world. This kind of genre also goes by the more popular label, second world fiction. Um, And this second world may have completely different laws of physics, but because it doesn't particularly overlap with our world, the reader's world, the real world, I guess, um, it doesn't produce the kind of cognitive dissonance that the properly fantastic produces. On the other hand, 
Zgorzelski also offers a mode called paramimetic fiction, in which the fiction starts out seemingly mimetic to our own world, but introduces fantastical elements, uh, though it then goes on to present these elements as part of the natural order of the world that the characters in most of the rest of the world simply haven't comprehended yet. Uh, so the Harry Potter books are like this, as is something like the X-Files. You know, the truth is out there. Whatever seems fantastical is but a secret aspect of the ordinary world that most of us muggles simply haven't encountered. But the secret world still operates under its own coherent rules. So for Zgorzelski, whose work I should note I'm getting secondhand uh, from an article by Grzegorz Trabitsky, which you can find referenced on the Medieval Death Trip website, um, Zgorzelski would say that this also isn't really fantasy. In the fantastical, the non-mimetic elements remain fundamentally strange and outside the order of the universe, um, without actually transcending into the realm of the purely surreal or allegorical, which he classifies as yet another distinct mode. So for proper fantasy, you're left with things like some examples of magical realism, uh, so long as the magic is never sort of systematized, or maybe something like certain kinds of Twilight Zone stories, uh, or maybe David Lynch's Lost Highway, which makes zero effort to rationalize uh, its strangeness. Anyway, why am I trying to hash out all these categorical systems? Well, because I want to know what we're supposed to make of a story like Bisclaveret. How do we begin to talk about the quote-unquote realism of this story? Skorzelski's definitions all largely presume that we start from a relatively stable set of assumptions about what the laws of our world are that we expect our fiction to mimetically imitate or fantastically violate. But when Marie says, it is a certain thing and within the knowledge of all that many a christened man has suffered this change and ran wild in the woods as a werewolf, we're left to wonder. For Marie's audience, is this a statement about reality? Or is it a description of the legendary age and fantastical version of Brittany in which the adventures of the Lays are set? It's really hard to say. There's certainly plenty of evidence in terms of criminal trials and historical accounts that point to very genuine belief in shapeshifters. Though the church also rather famously rejected the reality of physical metamorphosis um, in the so-called canon episcopy, uh, which was being promulgated around the same time that Marie is writing. Um, this document asserts that, quote, whoever believes that anything can be made or that any creature can be changed to better or to worse or transformed into another species or similitude except by the creator himself who made everything and through whom all things were made is beyond doubt an infidel. Of course, the need for such a theological prohibition attests to the existence of the folk belief in shapeshifting. But I think there's a difference between being open to believing in werewolves and actively accepting the reality of werewolves. I'm sure there's a theoretical framework in anthropology or psychology that distinguishes different degrees of belief and that gives us more nuanced levels than just the simple binary of believe in and not believe in, but I haven't yet encountered it. 
In my experience, there are plenty of people who claim to believe in something supernatural who would, I expect, nonetheless react with disbelief if they encountered an actual manifestation of it. So, on the one hand, you have people who are deeply superstitious and will not hesitate to attribute to spirits or energy vibrations or astrological forces every little event in their lives. Most of us have probably known someone like that. On the other hand, you have people who say they believe in ghosts or destiny or UFOs, but who, when confronted with a strange event or a bizarre coincidence or an odd light in the sky, will still have as their first and primary reaction, huh? Well, it's probably nothing. You know, so they may have intellectually a belief in the thing, but that thing still isn't quite real for them. Here's a slightly different example of this. A few years ago, I had a set Friday night routine of watching the British ghost hunting show Most Haunted on the Sci-Fi Channel. Now, the formula for Most Haunted involved um, starting out with a walkthrough of the location with a spirit medium who invariably would rattle off a whole confident narrative of the place and the spirits in it. And when I say confident, I don't mean that it wasn't still full of key ambiguities and ellipses. It was. Um, but that it was delivered with conviction, with deep belief, or at least the performance of belief. But in the second half of the show, the investigators, along with the medium, would go into night vision mode and wander around the supposedly haunted location. And strange things would happen, uh, usually knocking sounds or cold spots or very small pebbles seemingly being thrown around rooms. Um, and what struck me was how frequently the medium would have these freaked out reactions to the spooky manifestations. You know, what was that? Did, did anybody else hear that? You know, etc. You're the person who should know exactly what's going on, and you're doing double takes and getting startled like all the ordinary investigators. Um, there's a bit of dissonance there that I never could quite sort out. Anyway, all of this meandering table setting is really just to point out the interesting fact that in Bisclavret, the king does not seem to realize that he's dealing with a werewolf. Marie tells us, Everybody knows about werewolves, but even when faced with a very strangely behaving wolf, this possibility does not seem to cross his mind. So, is he a medieval example of genre blindness? And how could it be genre blindness if we, perhaps naively, assume that Marie's audience believes in werewolves as a natural phenomenon and part of the real world? Is the king's skepticism then an indication that, in fact, most of Marie's audience perceives werewolves as things you find in scary stories and not as creatures you might actually encounter while out hunting. Is the king's behavior realistic? Because people shouldn't really believe in werewolves. Or is it unrealistic because of course he should put two and two together and recognize a werewolf when he sees it? Or... Is it unrealistic because he's a character in the Brittany of chivalric romance and he should recognize the rules of that second world that he lives in? Or is it realistic skepticism that becomes frustrating for the audience because it turns into a form of genre blindness? Do we identify with the king's skepticism or does it make him look a bit foolish? Even after all of this, I still don't know how to answer this question. 
And it gets even more complicated when you start investigating the realism of more directly historical narratives that incorporate the supernatural. Uh, this is a big question in Norse saga studies, for example. And as Carolyn Walker Bynum discusses, it's a tricky issue even for 12th century thinkers who maybe don't have the same laws of physics reasons for discounting supernatural phenomena that we do, but they do have their own set of equally inviolable theological laws that rule out the existence of certain kinds of phenomenon, which historians nonetheless keep reporting and thus have to be either rationalized or dismissed using their own set of mimetic criteria. I can figure out most anything if you give me electric current and tubes and wires, but something I can do with my hands, but these things you can't even touch. What's the matter with you, Larry? Oh. Well, nothing, sir. But do you believe in these yarns? Larry, to some people, life is very simple. They decide that this is good, that is bad. This is wrong, that's right. There's no right and wrong, no good and bad. No shadings and grays, all blacks and whites. That'd be Paul Montford. Exactly. Now, others of us find that good, bad, right, wrong are many-sided, complex things. We try to see every side. But the more we see, the less sure we are. Now, you ask me if I believe a man can become a wolf. Well, if you mean, can he take on the physical characteristics of an animal? No, it's fantastic. However, I do believe that most anything can happen to a man in his own mind. Anyway, it's a fascinating problem, but I'll have to leave it there for now without any solid conclusion. Which leaves us with just our final segment. Last episode, I introduced a new feature which took the place of our usual riddle, and that was a medieval mystery word. Our first word from the first letter of the alphabet was Argnes, or probably more like Argnesa uh, in Middle English, which is the language from which it comes, uh, more or less. Um, actually, it has a direct Old English form, Ernes. Uh, the Ness part of this word is exactly the same as the usual Ness suffix today in words like happiness, sadness, wickedness, etc. It's a way of turning an adjective into a concept which leaves us with the stem to work out, this Old English erg, E-A-R-G, uh, or the Middle English arg, or arg, A-R-G-H. And this word has a range of meanings within a fairly set category. Uh, it seems to have a core meaning of timidness, which can either take on the sense of slothfulness and slowness to action, or it can be construed as cowardice and fearfulness. In any case, not a positive trait. Uh, arg, A-R-G, and similar spellings, um, is still in several modern Germanic languages, uh, though its meaning has broadened to a more general kind of awfulness. Um, in English, argness seems to have faded out sometime around the 16th century, um, but arg itself lingers as a dialect word in northern England, um, at least into the early 20th century. Uh, I don't know what its currency is now. Following some of the transformations of that G-H sound, um, the same ones that give us laugh and cough, arg becomes arf. And arf, or arfish, means both sluggish and fearful uh, in 
northern dialect. Um, the latter is seen in this quotation from 1876 in the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, which I durst not attempt to render in a northern accent, um, but here's the quote anyway. I felt our fish into dark. So, I'm scared of the dark. Is there any use for this word, for argness or archness or arfness in today's world, if you're not a stock rural pub patron in a British mystery show warning people to stay off the moors? Here's my proposal. We have activists who take action to promote causes they believe in, and now we have the epithet slacktivist, which is someone who feels very good about doing very trivial things to support a cause, like retweeting something or clicking a like button or what have you. I propose we go one step further along the scale of inactivism and have argtivists. Uh, and argtivists embodies that dual core of sloth and timidity. They don't do anything, um, not even as trifling as clicking a like button on a Facebook post, because they're just a bit afraid of some sort of negative reaction from their social network by having dared to express a political opinion. So not just people who don't care or can't be bothered. I mean, I expect that's the relationship the vast majority of us have to the vast majority of online causes. Uh, no, the archivist deliberately chooses not to act out of a reluctance to be seen taking a stand on something. That's my contribution to this election cycle. Um, I'm sure it'll take off like gangbusters. All right, we'll have a new mystery word next time, but we'll end this episode with a new riddle. It's a Halloween-themed riddle in a very classical form. Your riddle is, It's dead, and it seeks to drive the living from the forest. What is it? Once more, It's dead, and it seeks to drive the living from the forest. What is it? As I said, a classical riddle, so it's a matter of decoding the metaphor. Good luck with it. It's a tricky one. I'll be back in mid-November with the answer and a new episode. Until then, you can find us in the usual places. Our website is MedievalDeathTrip.com, where you can get more details about the texts and browse old episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast. That's a great way to ask questions or add comments. Um, but if that's not your bag, you can also do those things via email at the address patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. This episode, I have a few credits I should include. Uh, first, the sound clip of the Hunting Hounds is from freesound.org user Bin Bong Kong uh, and is used under the wonderful Creative Commons Attribution License. And the music at the beginning and end of the story is by Chris Lane, uh, my brother, who also produced our theme music, um, which is a version of a 14th century organ tune preserved in the Roberts Bridge Codex. All right, thanks for listening, and have a happy Halloween.